Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray, teach us through your sacred word that we would see the blessing that you bestowed upon Israel of old in granting them that service of worship and that likewise you have granted to us the very same thing, though in different means, yet the same God and the same privilege. We ask that you would meet with us and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue looking at the privileges God granted to his ancient people, making relevant application to ourselves concerning the privileges that we as Christians enjoy even greater than theirs. We've looked at Deuteronomy chapter 4. We saw how in verses 10 through 14, God gave his moral law, the Ten Commandments. And together, God, with those commandments, through the instrumentality of Moses, he commanded him to write down both statutes of worship and judgments of civil life. We saw our duty as Christians in the New Testament to wisely distinguish the laws of God delivered by Moses. We saw that the Israelites were privileged, that they were blessed to have God for their lawgiver and judge, and that this blessing is not suspended in the New Testament, but rather modified and enhanced. God is our Savior. There is only one lawgiver and judge, James says. That's not just for the Jews, it's also for Christians. We also saw the blessing that this is even to Christian nations, that they may have laws given from God himself conformable to his holiness. Now let's look at the privilege of the service of God, as the apostle says, who are the Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God. This word service is latreia, he latreia in Greek, the service. Thayer in his lexicon gives this definition of this Greek word. He says it means the service or worship of God in according to the requirements of the Levitical law. Please open to John chapter 6, excuse me, John 16, where this word is used, page 1085 of your pew Bibles. Our Lord Jesus Christ refers to the offense of the cross. The wicked would persecute his disciples, and he's trying to help them not to be scandalized or offended when these things come to pass. John 16, verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh 
that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. Notice there the word service. They will consider it an act of religion, an act of worship, a service that they render to God when they take you, my disciples, and put you to death. That's what he's saying. When they kick you out of the synagogue, they'll say, we're serving God. We're glorifying him. We're doing his will. When they, in Paul's day, go breathing out threats and slaughterings against the disciples of Jesus, he thought within himself, he said, that he ought to do many things against the name of Jesus. It was morally required, he thought. I'm serving God, in other words. Please turn over to Romans chapter 12 for this same word, latreia, or service. Romans 12, verse 1, page 1144. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Notice there, reasonable service. If you would like to know how you may worship God, how you may serve him, well, one, remember his mercies. Those mercies from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 11, verse 36, those mercies of God of justification, of sanctification, of redemption, of glorification, of calling, all these blessings that God has given and mercies to you, in light of those, do this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, in the temple, of course, the bodies of animals were presented. Under the Levitical worship, or latreia, or service, what did they present? Bulls, goats, they would have heifers, they would have rams, they would have turtle doves, and they would kill them and present them to God. He says, not these sacrifices, which are alagos, or brute, or irrational, but rather, God says, present your bodies as alive and yet sacrificed to him, as given and devoted entirely to do what he has commanded you, in other words. Such a sacrifice, though you are still alive and not dead, in other words, it doesn't atone for sin, this is a holy and acceptable sacrifice. And this, he says, is your reasonable service. The word is logikon, that which makes rational sense. In light of you not being an irrational beast, God requires a specific sacrifice of you to present your body, not for your own pleasure, not to do your own bidding, but rather to do his commandments, to do his holy will. This is reasonable service. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, if you would please, page 1212. More concerning the same word, service of God, or latreia, in the New Testament. This 
same word appears in verses 1 and 6, so we'll read the first six verses. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Do you remember that? From when we were in 1 Samuel, the showbread, that's what he was going to feed him with. They put in the new that day on the Sabbath. They took out the 12 old. David requests a portion. I think it was five out of the 12. This is what he's talking about. Verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Notice there. God had ordinances in Israel of divine service. He had a manner of worship, including a place, furniture, persons appointed, particular sacrifices, bread to be shown, oil to anoint, water to cleanse, all these things he had. And the author says, this all has significance. All these things. He says, I could speak to you point by point, particularly every single thing. I could show you the spiritual significance of these things. But the point is made. There was a worldly sanctuary and a manner of worship. And when God had ordained all of these things, verse 6 tells us, the priests were constantly going into that first tabernacle, and once a year they would go into the tabernacle of tabernacles, the holy of holies, the holiest of all. And he's going to use this in order to show us the true intention of these items, of these articles, of these actions, of these ordinances. That is, they point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God did not merely say, there shall be a lion from the tribe of Judah. He didn't merely say in prophetic utterance, there will be a son of David who will rule over the nations. He also gave them ordinances of worship to foresignify what Christ would do, what he would accomplish. This we call the service of God, the latreia, the worship, the religion that God ordained. Now, please turn over to the book of Exodus, where we'll see more detail concerning this same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint or the Seventy. Exodus chapter 12, we'll look at verses 3 through verse 10. And then we'll look down at 25 and 26. Verse 3 of chapter 12, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. 
And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the house wherein they shall eat. And he gives more ordinances concerning this Passover, as we call it. Look down at verse 25 of the same chapter on the next page. And it shall come to pass, when ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this, what? Latreia, the service. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? Here again, same word in the Septuagint translation. God appointed and ordained not merely the tabernacle, all of its furniture, all of the sacred actions, the showbread, the candlestick, the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim above. He didn't just ordain all that. He also gave them an annual memorial of their redemption. And we call that the Passover. And by the slaying of a lamb, by the spilling of its blood, God would signify that he would rescue them from death. He would deliver them from bondage. He would fulfill his testament and give them their inheritance. How? Through the blood of the lamb. This is the service that they observed, the worship of God. Please turn over to Joshua chapter 22, where in the Septuagint uses the same exact word, page 268, 268 of your pew Bibles. Joshua 22, page 268. Starting at verse 21. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know. If it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day, that we have built us an altar to, burn from, to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. Now you'll recall that when the two and a half tribes finished helping the rest get their inheritance by war, what did they do? They went back to the east side of Jordan. They received their inheritance on the east of the river Jordan. And when they did that, they put a giant copy of the altar that was down in Shiloh or in the tabernacle, wherever it would be. And that altar was to remind their descendants and the descendants of the tribes on the west of Jordan, that we have one manner of worship, we have one God, we serve together in the same tabernacle. That's what it was intended. And the ten and a half tribes said, they've fallen to idolatry. Let's go kill them. 
let's destroy those tribes and wipe them out in obedience to God. This is their answer. The children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the two and a half tribes, this is their answer or their apology for why they did what they did. It goes on. Verse 24. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, in time to come your children might speak unto our children, saying, what have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, ye children of Reuben and children of Gad. Ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Now notice, the whole reason they built this altar or this mock altar was so that their children could participate in one thing. What was it? The service. The grandest blessing God has offered us that our children can go down to the tabernacle and worship and offer burnt offerings together with your children to the Lord our God. Please turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, page 478, 478. Verse 13. Also for the courses of the priests and the Levites, and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the vessels of the service in the house of the Lord. Here, David gave a pattern to his son Solomon so that all of God's latreia could be carried on appropriately as God had commanded. Now, in between the Old and the New Testament, there are histories of the people of God, of their persecutions, their triumphs, their trials. And in the day of Antiochus, a tyrant that ruled over Israel, God raised up the spirit of Judas Maccabeus and his brethren to cast off the tyranny of the Greek rulers. But here, notice, this is what Antiochus said. He wrote a letter to all the people of the land saying this, and everyone should leave his laws. So all the heathen agreed. And according to the commandment of the king, many also of the Israelites consented to his religion, his manner of worship, his pagan altars, his pagan priesthood, the sacrifices that the pagan priests demanded. Everyone said, well, it's easier if we just go along, isn't it? If we just, we won't really worship in our hearts. We'll just worship with our bodies. We'll just do externally what we're told to do and do his manner of worship. And the Maccabees said, no, we will not. We will not do his manner of worship. We will not even eat bacon because God says not to eat it. We will refrain from it. But notice it was his 
religion that the Israelites consented unto, his manner of worship, and they sacrificed unto idols and profaned the Sabbath. I note then this doctrine. It is a privilege and blessing to have God prescribe your manner of worship. It is a privilege. In other words, it's a good thing that not everyone gets to enjoy. It is a privilege and a blessing. God is doing good to us. He's blessing us to have him say to us, here's how you must worship me. That's a prescription. You must do these things with this attitude on this day. That is a blessing to have God prescribe your manner of worship. The apostle here in Romans 9 is explaining for us the advantage of the Jew, the privileges, the blessings that were given to him. One of which is their manner of worship, their form of religion, their external acts of worship. That was a blessing from God. Did God adopt them as his sons? Yes. Did he show them his glory in his house and in the Exodus? Yes. Did he make them heirs of his promises, appoint them an inheritance? Yes. Did he give them laws to draw them to faith in Christ, to show them the manner of their worship and the manner of their civil government? Yes. God blessed them in so many ways. And these are all heavy and weighty privileges indeed. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who say, well, that privilege to have God dictate to us the manner of worship, that only belonged to the Jews. Now that Jesus died upon the cross, was crucified for our sins, God no longer tells us how we're supposed to worship him. Now all that matters is, do I have good feelings, warm fuzzies? Do I get a tingling in my stomach? Do I get an adrenaline rush? Do I get some kind of high, oh wow man, that was like so cool. Is that what worship is now? You feel good, your feels get stroked and you think everything is great because you just want to want to? Is that what worship is? Some people believe that. Oh, God gave laws for worship to be sure to the Israelites, but man, that was horrible, wasn't it? No, Paul says that was a blessing. God blessed them to give them a manner of worship as well as a manner of civil government as well as laws for their everyday life. Now God had said when the Gentiles would be incorporated into his people, he would do this very thing. Please open to Malachi chapter 1. God is not indifferent to the manner of the Gentiles' worship. Page 956. Malachi being the last of the prophets in the Old Testament. 956. Malachi 1, starting at verse 10. Who is there, even among you, that would shut the door for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. You know who he's talking to? The priests, the people of Israel. I'm done receiving your sacrifices and your offerings. Verse 10. Excuse me, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, 
even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, God has prophesied again and again through the prophets that he would set aside the temple, reject the Jews, and call the Gentiles. That's what he's saying here. I'm not receiving your offerings anymore, but where will I receive them? From the Gentiles. When the sun starts rising, when the sun goes down, where does the sun stop rising and setting on the earth? Can you find one place where the sun doesn't rise or set? You cannot. So God says, among all the nations of the earth, incense will be offered unto me and a pure offering. I will receive worship uncontaminated, unadulterated, pure and sincere worship like incense as the priests offered up. Please turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Sure, certainly our Lord Jesus Christ corrected this mistaken notion that somehow God cares about how he's worshipped now, right? Wrong. Matthew 15, verse 1, page 978. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread, but he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm pretty sure, taught Christian doctrine. But notice here, what is the Christian doctrine that Jesus teaches us? That we may not worship God in any other way than what he has commanded. In fact, he condemns as hypocritical, as vain, when men will worship God according to the doctrines and commandments of men, according to their traditions, according to their notions of right and wrong. It is vain, he said, it's empty, it has no substance, it's hollow. And furthermore, when we worship, we're saying, God, I think highly of you, worship. Worship is saying, I think highly of God. If you say, I think highly of God, but I'm not gonna listen to you when you tell me what I'm supposed to do in worship, you see how hypocritical that is? That's a mask that says, I love you, but I won't listen to you. I'm not gonna submit to your authority, I'm just gonna say, I honor you. The lip says one thing, the heart says something else. Open to Matthew 28, the final words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Still, I'm convinced these are Christian doctrines he's teaching. 
In fact, the word Christ is in it, Christian, so maybe it's Christian doctrine. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe almost everything that I have commanded you. Is that what he said? Leave off the table a couple of things. Don't teach them everything that I've commanded you. There are certain things that are just too private, just too personal. Don't talk about that. No. Teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you. When you read the words of the apostles, you can mark it down. Jesus commanded them to teach that to us. There's nothing wasted, no wasted space, no wasted verses, no empty space filled up with nothing but just jibber-jabber. No, it is all useful. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. Jesus teaches us how to worship through his apostles. Please turn over to Colossians 2. You see, Paul, he is the apostle of freedom. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Certainly it's going to be different with him. Right? Wrong. Colossians 2. It is not different. If God could change his sovereignty, it could be different. Until God stops being God, he dictates how he will be worshipped. Colossians chapter 2. Starting at verse 18, page 1189 of your pew Bibles, 1189. Starting at verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if he be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using? after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Here, notice a few things. Men may beguile you. Remember what David did to Achish. He beguiled him. He pretended he was mad. He feigned himself mad in his hands. He lied to him by his actions. Don't let anyone lie to you and deceive you and steal from you your reward. How will they do that? Well, God hasn't commanded us how to humble ourselves before him. We choose it. It's voluntary humility. Not designed by God himself, designed by us. Angels are glorious beings. Angels are, excel in strength they do exactly what God says when he tells them to do it. Quick, like 
fire and flame, boom, they're there. We ought to show a little more respect for angels, don't you think? Don't you think we should build shrines in their honor? Put them in our garden, maybe? Put them in a church? Burn a little incense in front of that angel? Let's call our church St. Michael's. Let's say, here we honor the great archangel Michael himself. Wouldn't that be great? No. That would be beguiling you by voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Ask me, how do they get around it? By more beguiling, by more lies. They have puffed up their fleshly minds. They don't hold fast to the head. Remember the wife? Does she hold fast to her head? Yes. What about the harlot? Does she hold fast to her head? No. She's the one who teaches you to worship angels, puffed up in her fleshly mind. Now notice, these prohibitions, touch not, taste not, handle not, all things that perish with the using. Do you think, hmm, does the Antichrist do that? You bet he does. Absolutely he does. On this day, don't eat this. On that day, don't eat that. During this season, don't eat this. Don't touch, don't taste. You want to be really holy? You know what you got to do? Don't get married. Go off into the wilderness. Live on top of a pillar like Simon Stylitis, living on top of a pillar. That's holiness. You people that are married, pfft, whatever. You're like silver-grade Christians. You want to be a gold-grade? Go out into the wilderness. Don't get married. Touch not. Is there a prohibition against touching your own wife? No. Is there a prohibition otherwise? Yes. But not in this case. These say religion consists in fleeing from the world, not being part of it. God says otherwise. But notice, all these things are after the commandments and doctrines of whom? Men. If I asked you to come in here for worship, and I said, now, Open your copy of John Calvin's Institutes to Book 1, Chapter 1. We're going to read this as the Word of God. What would you say to me? Heretic. Heretic. I'm leaving. How can you command me as a minister of the gospel to do something without the authority of Christ? I can't. That's not my job. My job is God has doctrines and commandments. Men have all kinds of doctrines and commandments. And God says, this is what you bind them with, this is what you don't. Doctrines and commandments of men, keep that out. Doctrines and commandments of God, keep that in. It is a privilege and a blessing to have God prescribe for us our manner of worship let us then rejoice in God's lawful and inspired mode of worship. Let us enter into his courts with praise and thanksgiving. Let us offer what Malachi said would be a pure offering. What our Lord says is not after the doctrine and commandments of men, but whatsoever things he has commanded us. Let us come to God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, not through creatures and other mediators. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Another doctrine. This is from our confession of faith, 
Chapter 21, paragraph 1 says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so is limited to his own revealed will. Do we think that God has a will he has not revealed publicly in Scripture? That we can go and hear a little voice that says, wouldn't it be nice if we did dot, dot, dot? Put that down. Doctrines and commandments of men. That's what that is. God says that we may not worship according to the doctrines and commandments of men. Then he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Put the two together and what do you have? The only way to worship God is how he is commanded. This is a rebuke to our base unthankfulness, refusing to worship God as he's commanded. God says it's a blessing for him to appoint our manner of worship. We say, no thanks, do it myself, God. We got it, we'll figure this out. I don't have to listen to the husband, says the whore. I can do it my own way. I sit as a queen. I make my own laws. This is base ingratitude, unthankfulness. God, in his grace, designed the means for us, and we say no. This is also audacity, daring sacrilegious boldness, as if God were not in heaven and we upon the earth we multiply our words and tell him, no, you don't understand, God. In our culture, it doesn't work that way, you see. We got to be user-friendly. We got to have it so that everybody likes it and we get lots of clicks. Is that what God says? He does not. Do your duty. Leave the results to God. Men who seek to bind other men to worship in means that God himself has not appointed in the word, that's anti-Christian. That's saying, I reign as king here. No, I don't. Christ is the king and head of his church. Pastors are under shepherds to enforce his laws, not theirs. Let us then delight ourselves in the worship of Almighty God. Let us hear his voice in scripture. Follow his commandments, shunning the doctrines and commandments of men, worshiping according as Jesus has commanded us, the only one with the right and the wisdom to ordain acts of worship, God himself. And thus far the exposition of Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Let's pray.